Welcome to Lung Cancer Concert, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all our podcasts on SoundCloud and islc.org in the newsroom. I'm your host, Dr. Narjus Duma. Welcome to Lung Cancer Concert. I'm your host, and Dr. Narjus Duma, I'm a thoracic oncologist at the Lowe Center for Thoracic Oncology at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute and an assistant professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School. I'm under, honored today to be joined by Dr. Cadronell and Dr. Laskin. Dr. Jax Cadronell is the head of the Department of Pulmonology and Thoracic Oncology at the Systems Public Hospital de Paris and Sorbonne <laughs> University. Here's my friend. Sorry. It's a perfect accent. Uh, and Dr. Janessa Laskin is a medical oncologist at the Vancouver Cancer Center in British Columbia, Canada. Thank you so much for being here with us today. It's a pleasure. Thank you for the invitation. Yeah, thank you very much. I'm very happy to, to be here with uh, Janessa and you discuss about energy one driving solid tumor. <laughs> Something that's wonderful about ISLC is that we are an international organization. So I'm so happy to have somebody from British Columbia, somebody from France, and I'm here in Wisconsin, soon to be in Boston. So first, we'd like to learn from our guests. And I'm going to start with Janessa, just to learn quickly about your journey to thoracic oncology. What made you pursue a career in thoracic oncology? Well, I guess I've always really enjoyed problem solving and interacting with people. I think that's what drew me to medicine and oncology in particular. Uh, it's a privilege to be involved in people at such a in people's lives at such a difficult part of their cancer journey and and lung cancer in particular has so many challenges. And I think one of the things I I really found fascinating about lung cancer when I started was how little we knew about lung cancer and all the different kinds that there probably were going to be during my career. At the time I started, there was just small cell and non-small cell. So I I think that the challenge and the opportunity to make changes uh, was really what drew me to uh, thoracic oncology. And I did a fellowship at Vanderbilt with David Johnson and Alan Sandler, and they really instilled this excitement about research, which has really come to pass in the last 20 years. So it keeps me going, knowing that we can apply new technology and and make a real difference in our patients' lives. Thank you for sharing that. And Jack, how was your journey to thoracic oncology? Okay, I will say uh, destiny. (laughs) I'm like cats. And I have several lives. And the first one, uh, I was a pulmonologist. And initially, I rather work on rare diseases. As a matter of fact, my department is also a reference center for rare pulmonary diseases. Then I worked for 10 years on AIDS in the lung. But June 1996, the department was emptied of all AIDS patients because of highly active antiretroviral therapy effectiveness. And I began a career as a thoracic oncology, so not so old thoracic oncologist. Uh, at the beginning, I conducted a research group devoted on the pneumonic adenocarcinomas, 
and we described two subtypes of such pneumonic adenocarcinoma, non mucinous types and mucinous types at the same time. It was the start of the EGFR-TKA stories, but we did not anything about the EGFR mutations. And we see that the mucinous adenocarcinoma progressed rapidly under erlotinib or gefitinib. Although non-smokers, many were Kiras mutated, and today we are talking about energy one fusions and necessarily about mucinous adenocarcinoma. So it's why we be there today. Thank you for sharing that story. As we have more and more guests, we learn that, you know, life, particularly in academic medicine, is about just taking the opportunities, running with them. That's what we have learned about so many stories. So before we dig into energy one, which is our main subject, we just like to share with our listeners just a little, a little bit of how oncology, thoracic care happens outside or happens in other sites of ISLC. And I'm going to start with Janessa because you're in Vancouver, Canada, and I was in Seattle. So I used to go to Vancouver often when I was at the Fred Hutchinson. So to just summarize your answer is like, how do the patients with lung cancer get to your clinic? Do they all get NGS and they're all presented at tumor board? So I guess we had the opportunity to recruit you when you were in Seattle. Maybe we passed it up. The uh, So the way cancer care is organized in the province of British Columbia, we have six regional cancer centers. So we have a centralized organizational structure where almost all of the patients in the province, we have about 5 million people across a very big geographical area. But all of the care is centralized in these six agencies so that we can keep track. We have uh, very consistent care. So people living thousands of miles away actually get the same care that they would in a large center like Vancouver. It also allows us to recruit patients for trials across the whole country, uh, across the whole province, and then keep a really good uh, clinical database. So it's quite a unique opportunity to do research here. In Vancouver, I work at a large tertiary cancer center. We're kind of the center for a lot of the research that happens, but we uh, are associated also with the University of British Columbia. So I'm an associate professor of medicine at UBC, and we see lots of students and residents and do a lot of training as well. So we really have a referral base of the entire province for some expert care or very complicated trials, but we also just see all the patients with lung cancer in the city of Vancouver and the large environment. So patients do know that they have cancer. They need to have a diagnosis of cancer by the time they're referred to us. So they're usually referred by respirologists or pulmonologists like Jacques' colleagues. And then they come to us for all of their staging and management so um, we're really seeing basically almost everyone in the in the catchment area. It's it's not a very highly selected population. That being said, we have a really interesting demographic in Vancouver. We have almost a forty percent Asian population, and that means that we see a lot of EGFR mutations, um, which makes it quite interesting to study um, and for clinical trial enrollment and so on. So, Jax, just a little bit of how these patients get to you in France. 
Yes, so I'm lucky because I'm working in Paris and in the university hospital and also in a cancer center. So all is in the same place. Uh, and because I am a pulmonologist, we, we are going from the diagnosis to the extension, staging extension and to the treatments. And we have also in the same place to radiotherapists and surgeon. And we have in the, in the department, uh, we treat the patient in the department either with uh, basic chemotherapy, but uh, also with uh, several trials. And we have uh, also the, the, the chance to have a, a lab to, to develop uh, translational research. And uh, for four years, uh, we have developed an, an ambulatory rapid diagnostic center for patients with lung cancer. So GP sent us just a mail and the patient was uh, will be seen uh, by an oncopneumologist of the, of the team with a coordinating nurse. Then their diagnosis staging is carried out so that in less than 15 days, their medical records is seen during the tumor board meeting. So it's, it's very comfortable for me and for the patient too. And uh, for, the, all, for all patients with a metastatic uh, disease, uh, we have a, a reflex testing type molecular assessment for PDL1, ALK, ROSE by EHC, and after a GFR common mutation with rapid techniques. And during this time, depending on the discussion with the pathologists and the molecularists, we are beginning a DNA or ARNA extraction and perform on 28 chains NGS techniques. And in parallel, more recently, ARNA sequencing for the search of fusions or exon 14 skip deletion of MET. And it has been changed recently because uh, we are not very comfortable with the NGS technique because it's, it's relatively not uh, quick and we have no so much interest on in the results. And the time is long before the results. And for non-smoker patient, we prefer to have RNA sequencing technique. So we had changed. We make EHE for ALK and ROS on PL1, refer with rapid technique. And after that, it's a non-smoker. We go to the energy, to the not energy one, to the NR sequencing technique. I don't know if you use the, the change your technique recently uh, in, uh, in Canada. Thank you for reminding me about that part of the question. So we do have a standardized molecular testing for everyone with advanced non-small cell lung cancer. Uh, we have been using IHC to screen for uh, ALK, ROS1. Uh, sometimes they're confirmed with FISH. Uh, and we do all of that centralized in our Vancouver Center for the everyone across the province. Their, their samples are sent here. We also uh, had an in-house 26-gene comprehensive DNA panel uh, that we are now phasing out and bringing in some um, more uh, broader panel, I guess, uh, that uh, will hopefully be able to capture more fusions. So right now, NRG1, for example, we don't, uh, we don't have a, a standardized mechanism for testing that. And I think you're right. We do need a blend of different technologies to try to get our results quickly. And that that needs to continue to evolve and change because every every few months we have some new interesting target we have to find. 
So I, I also have a very big research interest where we do much more comprehensive sequencing, and that's usually how we find novel novel fusions or abnormalities. And you can have the result in how, how much time? Well, of course, the IHC for standardized testing is much faster than our uh, our full our panel of sequencing. That's two to three weeks, which I think is pretty long. It can be. It can be longer if the di if the pathology has to be sent from another center. Um, for the experimental part that we do, we do whole DNA and RNA sequencing, and of course that's uh, takes a lot longer. But it can it can identify very interesting novel um, abnormalities and allows us to test new hypotheses. And then eventually these things become incorporated into more standard care, which is sort of the story with NRG1. But it's not frustrating to have uh, so much Asian population and not to have uh, so quickly uh, fermentation results. So you begin this for this patient uh, if they are aggressive disease with chemotherapy first? No, we usually manage to get it fairly fast fairly quickly we start the process when they're referred so usually after i meet them i have that egfr within a week or so and we do have a a very focused little machine that can do egfr in a day so in times where it's very desperate we can get it more quickly yes it's it's, it's the same it's the same for us uh, we we are going go, coming back to to <laughs> Just PCR <laughs> for the 19 or L80 or exon 21 mutation because we don't want to wait with a non-smoker Asian patient for 10 or 20 days to have uh, the result of uh, a GFM mutation. So Definitely. It's a complete, complicated situation today. But it is a balance too because I want m the most information possible. So if we use too much too much of the precious tissue just to get EGFR and it's negative, then I, I want all the other genes that we can we can come up with. And so that's, there is that balance, absolutely, of getting yes, a fast result. Yes. But, but we have organized this because when you see a patient with a evidence metastatic disease, the pathologists know that, so it's it's right written on the on the on the biopsy uh, uh, report, and she immediately not just cut four slides, but maybe eight or ten, and after that we can decide decide quickly uh, what to do with the slides. So no no records, okay. So if we stop because EHC alt positive. So fish are not fish. And if, if it's negative, the DNA and RNA will be extracted directly, not to, not to, not to extraction. Today, we make only one extraction for DNA or RNA on the RNA. So we can ask for the molecules to go rather to RNA sequencing or DNA with the NGS. So we move a lot uh, with time and we discussed a lot with pathologists and the molecularists. So I think what you've identified is so important and that it's the involvement of pathologists early on. And that has been a critical change to work with them to streamline a, an efficient process so that they really understand the impact uh, on, in the clinic of the testing that they're doing. 
And I think that's been a change in the last 20 years. We we now uh, really work very closely with our pathology colleagues, which I think is a, a wonderful um, expansion of our of our group. So we are going to move. Thank you for sharing all your experiences. We're going to get to the meat of talking about energy and I'm going energy one. I'm going to start with Jax. So we have introduced and seen an increased interest in lichen stabilization process and permanent activation of normal pathways. You know, along those lines, we have energy one. And we would love for you to explain many of our audience, our patients, our doctors in the community that are known in academia. So Jax, I'm going to ask you to explain to us, how is this pathway associated with lung cancer as an introduction to our discussion? Okay, so if, if, if I'm wrong, Janessa, you can cut me on, on, take the, on take the micro. So molecular alterations in lung cancer, most of them involve a transmembrane or intracellular proteins that are kinase activities which are activated without the need for the presence of their ligand. It's uh, the case for a JFR or BRAF mutation, and also for fusion, ALK, ROSE, RET, and TRAC. For METS, it's another story. It is also a transmembrane receptor with kinase activity, but the thinalis pathway is activated due to two processes. The first one is the amplification of a normal gene, so there's an activation because there are many, many transmembrane proteins, but she's not, it's normal. On the other possibility, there is a, a cut in the exon 14, and this exon 14 on code for a domain involved in the MET catabolism. So the MET protein could not be catabolisms, so the, the, the cells, it's perpetually activated. For energy one, it's, it's another completely different, uh, different mechanisms. It's also transmembrane protein, but it, without any kinase activity. So it is, the, it is a natural ligand for HER3, HER1, HER2, HER3, HER4, and HER1 is EGFR. And the HER3 is also a transmembrane protein, but without any kinase activity. So normally, Energy one is cutting by a protease on the domain that's mean a GF domain, a, a, a Peter Malcolm's factor domain, will go on the Earth free, but Earth free could not be nothing without another partner that is generally Earth two or Earth three, but also sometimes a GFR. With the heterodimerization, Earth three used the kinase of Earth two to be to activate the cell. So it's a normal physiological pathway. In the case of fusion, a part of energy one gene will, uh, will be cut on tests with another gene. So it's a fusion gene that gives a fusion protein. And the fusion protein has at the outside the cells at the always a EGFR, EGFR epidermal growth factor, sorry, domain but it could not be cut by the protease. So it will be always here at the, at the, at the membrane of the cells. And in front of, uh, of it, there is her free, that is normal, but there are all uh, uh, continuously activated by the EGF domain that is, that is not cut by the protease. 
of this Y, the cell would be activated by the R2 as we have seen, but perpetuously on the, uh, the, they acquired a tumoral phenotype with uh, activation of the mobility of the cells and the, the protection against apoptosis and also anoiki, so she, she, it can uh, go outside the membrane, um, basal membrane, on growth uh, without the need for uh, membrane basal, basal membrane. So it's, it's why energy one fusion uh, become uh, oncogenic. Maybe you can correct me, uh, Janice, Janessa, please. That was uh, far more detailed and comprehensive than I could have possibly given. Uh, this, uh, I think you're a true scientist and I am an imposter. I, I think about it like NRG1, uh, the fusion um, itself can't be targeted, but what it does is it stimulates uh, the EGFR pathway uh, downstream and I'm comfortable with EGFR inhibitors. So I feel like if I can block those, then indirectly we're blocking the production of the, the, the abnormality from the fusion. Um, but your explanation was far more scientific. Mine is perhaps just more practical. Yes, I'm also a very practical man. <laughs> well, that is a wonderful combination. And, you know, energy is new. It's the new kid in the block. We know that, right? There's some kids that have been around for longer, like EJFR. So, Janessa, something that comes frequently asked is how should we test for energy one? Because still new, right? And we initially just talk a little bit about it, but what would your recommended way of testing for this? Well, I think we're still evolving the best testing mechanisms. I think, you know, we always like to try to learn from previous abnormalities. So we think, oh, maybe we can find it with IHC, but uh, as we do for ALK. And then we try it in ROS1 and we find that everybody is positive for IHC. So we end up doing a lot of fish. Um, and similar, you know, I don't think IHC is going to pan out very well for NRG1, at least, at least the ones we've been testing. So for now, from my perspective, it seems really like you need a, an RNA-based test if you're going to catch um, all these fusions. There's so many different fusion partners that I think really RNA is is the is the best way. And there are more and more as the technology evolves and develops and gets better, we're going to be able to make use of RNA. From my point of view, I think if you're just starting out your testing, that's the platform you should use if you if you possibly can. I think personally, I think we're going to find more and more fusions that are clinically relevant in the next five 10 years, I think fusions are going to take off as we're able to detect them and understand them and understand whether they have neoantigen potential and how they interact with the uh, immune system. I think that's going to be a big question. And as our technology like nanopore um, gets better and better, we're going to see more fusions. Uh, so I would not try to use old technology. I would just try to push ahead with an RNA-based um, platform. Even though they're expensive, if you think about it, a month of drug is really expensive and RNA, you know, is a fraction of that. If you can pick the right drug, to me, that's worth the money. I completely agree with you, Janessa. What is also very expensive is a, is a month of technician 
on the on the on the on pathologists, on moleculares. So I completely that agree with you completely. So at the beginning, what we what we did, we select the patient that are non-smoker, that are non-curas, that are mucinous, okay. But it's it's a long way. So today we 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 know that we want to to uh, reduce the time and reduce uh, the the time for the for our work, and also the the reduce the consumption of the tissue because we know that the patient will be rubbery or we we have maybe new drugs so we want to retest DNA or RNA for another target. So we are to be very very. Um, do not uh, uh, spend too time on too money uh, for each uh, for each sequence. So today, my preferred uh, uh, diagnostic approach will be RNA sequencing, and if possible, agnostic RNA sequencing, because we have today captured the RNA sequencing. So we'll see only what you want to see, but we will not see the the, the next one. So I think we have to migrate to agnostic from, so from some oriented to agnostic strategy. Uh, I I agree completely. I think we keep regretting uh, these individual tests because suddenly you're interested in the next fusion, and you have to retest someone, or or you don't you don't know who would have had that already if you had all their RNA you could look back without having to do new biopsies or new 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 tests. So I think, again, I'm sold on the more information, the better. Uh, I'd like to see that for everybody. And as we learn about this mutation, we also want, you know, to tend to associate these two group of patients with clinical characteristics. We know NRG1, the frequency is less than some of the other mutations. But we have learned over time that our patients, we have eventually brain metastasis, EGFR is very common in Asians. So Janessa, from your review article, where are some of those characteristics, like clinical characteristics that you saw that were unique in these two group of patients? Well, I think as Jacques already mentioned, uh, it does seem to have a higher prevalence in mucinous adenocarcinomas. So I think that that's a, a good place to start. There was initially indications that it could not coexist with KRAS, but I think as we collect more and more patients and the registry data comes out on NRG1, uh, we're going to see that perhaps that's not actually true. So in some tumor types, I think we could target KRAS wild type like pancreas. But I think in lung, I think at this point we can just say adenocarcinoma I'm not sure we know enough or have tested enough people to be more specific. I do think we see it more often in mucinous, but beyond that, I'm not sure we can narrow it down. And I will support that because I do have two patients, which I, I specialize in women with lung cancer. So most of my patients are younger women and both of them are mucinous with the NRG1 mutation. And there, one is one of the clinical trials here. Um, so yeah, the first case I ever saw was 2015, and uh, this was a adenocarcinoma in a non-smoker, but it was not mucinous. Subsequently, I've tested uh, about 20 mucinous patients, and I haven't found a single one. So, you know, I think we just have to test more people before we really understand. No, no. So it seems to be determined. Go ahead, Jackson. No, no. Pro probably uh, the. I think that it's. 
the same for other uh, alteration. When there are other alter commutation, usually it's subclonal. But I think it's very important because probably it indicates a more resistance disease, even if you give the good target, good target therapy. So I think it's important to have the commutation environment to the, the energy one uh, uh, fusion. And today we say we say that it's exclusive, but probably we see that uh, maybe there are P, 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 free kinase association or Kira's subclonal association. So we have to learn a lot about this uh, round round uh, so for the other one, of course. So now maybe we need a tiny trial with uh, a KRAS inhibitor plus an NRG1 inhibitor in these uh, five global patients that we'll see every year. That would be a tiny trial. And uh, along those lines, now you're talking about clinical trials, I want to ask both of you, when you do find the fusion, how does that change your first-line treatment for a patient we have carcinoma stage four? And I will start with Jax. Of course, I have no recommendation to offer, unfortunately, clearly. But my choice will, will first go to the possibility of including patient in a therapeutic trial, and it's easy for me or probably for Janessa, not always the case for outside for other 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 doctors because they are not in the in university or very uh, aggressive team. Uh, afterwards, uh, I will say that these patients are often non-smokers with a mucinous histology, a weak expression of PDL1, and a weak TMB. So all these doses not make me want to expose this patient to immunotherapy, even if immunotherapy is very exciting today. I think not the good, the good strategy for this patient, either alone, of course, but uh, uh, even with chemotherapy. Uh, in, my, in my opinion, I will give in this patient a platinum doublet uh, chemotherapy with pemetrexed or paclitaxel, okay? And we learned for the our previous study on the uh, uh, adenocarcinoma that carboplatin paclitaxel with a maintenance with paclitaxel, well done, okay? Even if, if I think that pemetrexed is well comfortable for the patient, okay? So probably I will give pemetrexed first and reserve the paclitaxel for the second line, maybe. And I think so also that the, Sometimes these tumors are, are low growth thing, so no very aggressive tumor. So in this context, I will prefer a weekly Bactexel uh, strategy than the every three weeks strategy. Finally, also in these patients, sometimes, and particularly in energy one and rose patient, there is a pneumonic, pneumonic uh, uh, presentation on the patient with hypoxemic with cough and brocorea, and in this patient, I will recommend, but it's just a recommendation for myself, to give bevacizumab, because bevacizumab reduces the brocorea of the patient, and bevacizumab also restores a normal vascularization in the tumor, so reduce the hypoxemia. And, and that's very interesting. Because yes. I think bevacizumab is coming back again, right? We got very excited with immunotherapy and we forgot about BEF. Mm -hmm. And now with the patients that are progressing in osimertinib, we're like, oh, BEF, where had you been, right? And I think I love that recommendation for energy one too. It's like, it's all friends. What a recommendation, okay, right? Uh, and also as for colon cancer, I think that 
should be continuous bevacizumab, even if you change the treatment. But it's only my opinion based on a few cases, but I think we can have an international uh, uh, cohort to, to maybe to preside this, uh, the place of bevacizumab in this patient with mucinous type and with a very extensive disease in the lung and no so much metas uh, uh, metastasis outside the thorax. This is my, my proposal. Thank you, Jack. So Janessa, how, what is your first line treatment for these patients? So Jack say platinum therapy, it won't change the regimen. At least we have a clinical trial. So what is your way to treat it, of treating these patients? Yeah, I think if there's a clinical trial, of course, that's always what everybody would want to do. For us, the problem is I don't ever find it first line. Our testing is not in a first line setting. So um, I agree with Jacques, we would usually start with a platinum-based doublet, assuming someone is, is fit. Um, and then in second line, when we have the opportunity to think about, again, a clinical trial, I guess if I found it in a first-line setting, I feel comfortable enough with a drug like a fatinib, which is the only thing that I have available to me. If there was another pan-EGFR inhibitor, I think that's also potentially reasonable. So neratinib or, or, or something else, you know, with some uh, HER3 activity. For us, we've been really lucky to have access to a fatinib, and so that's been the, the drug that we've gone to. Um, but I think uh, there are others in development. We're hoping to open uh, the monoclonal antibody trials. Uh, so I think that I believe in the target enough that I would try something like that first line if I found it. I think just right now, tech, technology-wise, we're, we're not searching for it first line. I hope that will change. So I'm going to summarize for the our listeners that are not familiar with this fusion because it's, it's rare and it's also right kind of new. So we we carboplat like carbo of splatin and platinum based therapy plus BEF immunotherapy is usually not um, the first choice. But afatinib, based in your review article, can be a treatment option if you're able to get access to it. Of course, a clinical trial. And as we move through through to these questions about treatment, is will you ever give immunotherapy to patients with energy one mutations? Because you know, pembrolizumab is around the block and everybody talks about it. So I will start uh, with Jack. Janessa, Janessa first response. Okay, Janessa <laughs> first response. There you go. Oh, the pressure is on. Well, you know, I never say never. Uh, I've even tried immunotherapy in people with EGFR mutations when I've run out of everything else, not that I've had any responses. So I think, um, but I agree with Shock. I don't think that it would necessarily be my first go-to. If we had the option to use bevacizumab, I would. It's not funded in Canada, so it's very hard for us to get a hold of. Funding, of course, is different for different countries, and so that is something that we haven't talked about, but it can be a big issue with an international audience. But what you might want to give is not necessarily something that the patient can access easily, and whether they would pay for it is a different question. So I think I would reserve immunotherapy for the final line of treatment. Uh, I don't think that I would use triple triplet therapy. If I knew they had an NRG1 fusion, I think I'd go ahead with a platinum-based doublet and then hopefully be able to target the NRG1 and then probably end up with docetaxel or a taxane-based thing. And then ultimately, if they're still 
around and really keen to try something, I think I would in the end try an immunotherapy, but I don't have my hopes up. You know, we still don't understand a lot of the fusion partners. So as I said before, I think some fusions are more uh, prone to stimulate the immune system or be neoantigenic, I guess. I think we're still learning that. So it may be that certain fusion partners uh, we actually should consider immunotherapy. I just we just don't know enough about that yet. Yes, I think for the for the PL one uh, for the immunotherapy, I think there is three three positions. The first one, heavy smoker, high expression. I have no reluctance to give without any uh, without without uh, waiting the result of NGS to give uh, uh, immunochemotherapy or immunotherapy. For patient, non-smoker patient or old small small smokers, I will wait for the result of the complete uh, molecular uh, alteration. And if I cannot wait, I will not give uh, immunotherapy. Even the patient have a high expression of PDL1. If it's a non-smoker or a, a, a low smoker that has been uh, stopped for a long time. Because we know that this expression is not related to the immune response against the tumor, but only related to the stat activation on the overexpression of PDL1 without any uh, reason due to the immuno, uh, immune response. Uh, so clearly, I will not give. And we know also if you give an immune checkpoint inhibitor, and after we give you, you uh, your molecules give you a mutation. If you give after uh, immunotherapy a TKI, uh, there is a, a high toxicity, skin, liver, and also lung. So really, I, I will not give to this patient a PD-1 or PD-1 inhibitor. For it's probably different for BRAF mutation of or exomets uh, rearrangement because many of these patients are smokers. So it's ambiguous. Probably the immune response, but also on cardiac addiction, I, I'm not so comfortable for this patient now. That's and for patient, I have a few patients with a GFM mutation that I will give later uh, immune checkpoint inhibitor, but after rebiopsy, after showing that the the tumor was infiltrated by TCD, 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 Eight cells, maybe expressing perforin, and if we if we do that, we give one injection of uh, of uh, PD one or PD one inhibitor, and we will uh, make quickly after a reevaluation and maybe by a TEP scan uh, to see if there is a metabolic response of or not, because we are very uh, anxious of a hyper progression. And finally, probably the mucinous tumor are very, very uh, no responsive to immune therapy because it's a human desert. It's a cold tumor. It's, there's no so much uh, molecular alteration. So pay attention to this tumor, that particular tumor. Well, we are unfortunately running out of time. I think it has been a great opportunity to learn about NRG1, and I would love to have a follow-up in months or a year to know where we are. I think energy is the new kid in the block. We are learning. Like I, every time I have one now, I'm like, you know, figure out what we're going to do. I want to thank the two of you and please 
just if we can finish the podcast with one little part about your experience with Energy One for our listeners. And um, thank you to the both of you. I will start with Janessa. Just one little thought about this new kid in the block. Well, I think if you don't look for it, you won't find it. So I encourage you all to uh, think about it as uh, as something uh, for your patients and don't be afraid to act on it. I think we have a lot to learn and can benefit patients tremendously. Jax? Yeah, it's the same. We have to learn a lot uh, with this, this uh, new uh, Energy One uh, fusion. And uh, we will be better if we, if we work together with all the countries and make uh, uh, new, new cohort study, new uh, uh, trial on academic trial, not only uh, industrial trial, because uh, our, our, our answer is to prolong the survival of the patient, not only to see the response to the drug. So uh, I'm very happy to, to work with Janessa and you in the future for this, uh, for this Energy One tumor. Thank you very much for inviting me. <laughs> I like it. I think if if we can't travel, at least our data can travel. So. Yeah. Yes, sure. So thank you, everyone. If you have an Energy One case and you want to like get these into a register or anything, I think we can contact these two leaders and experts. This is Dr. Narjus Zuma. Thank you for listening to Lung Cancer Crusade. We release a podcast twice a month. So please... If you like this episode, like us and your favorite platform. Um, and thank you, everyone. Thank you for listening to Lung Cancer Concert. You can find all our podcasts on our website, islc.org, in our newsroom, or on SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rank, like, write comments, and share your favorite episodes with your colleagues.